From Brennan to the Bocachil, from Lamy to La Push, and from the lordly Salduck to lovely Duckabush, from Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine. Climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for episode 87, The People Who Live Amongst the Rocks and the Seagulls. The Makah tribe has seen several changes throughout antiquity, just like other living cultures. Kids in the Makah community today go to public schools, dress in blue jeans and Nikes, watch TV, and play video games. Adults in the Makah community today are quite similar to adults across America. They go to college, use the internet, and make choices that have an impact on their education, families, and health. However, the Makah people also participate in ancient secret organizations, go to potlatches, and hunt gray whales. The Makah tribe reserved several ocean fishing banks and sea mammal hunting grounds when the 1855 Treaty of Nia Bay was signed. Although they are not all along the ocean, each of these locations has a name in the Makah language. Since the beginning of time, Makah sailors have been able to navigate beyond the line of sight of land, therefore some of these fishing and sea animal hunting locations can be up to 100 miles from land. The abundance of the reservation extends beyond the natural riches found in the Macaw Territory's rivers, lakes, tidelands, and ocean regions. Macaw forests offer a diversity of wood kinds for carvers, a large number of land animal species for hunters, and a vast range of plants that can be used as food, medicine, or building resources. A world-class museum, a general shop, a public school, an Indian health service clinic, a gas station, and a number of restaurants are among the modern amenities and services available on the reservation today, but the region is still far from most major cities. Mudslides and washouts frequently occur on State Route 112, the sole paved route that connects the Macaw Reservation to the remainder of the Olympic Peninsula. About 70 miles separate the reservation from the county seat, Port Angeles. This travel is particularly hazardous when the roads are icy or when the reservation is experiencing one of the numerous rain and windstorms that wreak havoc on the region from October to late April. Peak gusts of 50 miles per hour or higher frequently accommodate fall and winter storms, while rainfall frequently averages over 100 inches a year. Before non-natives migrated into Macaw country, the Macaws resided in five year-round settlements. Temporary homes were situated in areas where travel was seasonal. These areas gave Macaws the opportunity to gather and prepare seasonal food supplies such as spring halibut or summer salmon. The plentiful resources of the ocean, tidelands, woods, and rivers were utilized by the Macaws in their way of life. There are numerous descriptions of this way of living in anthropological literature. The name Kwai Ditch Cha'at, which roughly translates to the people who live among the rocks and the seagulls, was used by the Macaw language to refer to themselves. When traveling far from the sight of land in larger cedar canoes, Macaw fishermen and marine mammal hunters reaped the wealth of the ocean and used a fixed reference navigation method. The hunt for whales in the open ocean was the most amazing of these marine customs. The Macaw people mostly hunted gray and humpback whales, while there is evidence that they sometimes targeted other whale species as well. Additionally, according to archaeological evidence, the Macaw people have been whale hunters for almost two millennia before the present time. Whales provided food, raw materials, a source of spiritual and ceremonial strength, as well as lucrative trade commodities to the ancient Macaws. Like butter and olive oil today, whale oil was a significant food product that was produced from the blubber. 
If the meat hadn't already gone bad, it would all be used. Before the animal could be hauled from the water to one of the settlements, whale meat frequently deteriorated. The whale was ceremonially blessed and thanked when it reached the shore, after which it was processed for food and raw resources like bone. The tribe also used whales that perished at sea and washed ashore, although this practice did not have the same ceremonial, spiritual, or subsistence significance as that of whale hunting. Only the oil and raw materials would be used in the case of drifted whales. The meat would be practically all but useless. The macaws valued other marine mammals as well. They also hunted a variety of seals and sea otters in addition to the whales. While the latter were used for skin and teeth, the former could be utilized for food, oil, and their skins. Western red cedar, which made excellent ocean-going canoes, dwellings, tools for carving and cooking, clothes, and ceremonial decorations, served as the foundation for a large portion of the ancient Macaw people's material civilization. Other plants, intertidal animal shells, bones from both land and sea mammals and birds, bear, deer, elk, and domestic dog skins were among the vital resources that helped support the prehistoric way of life. The ancient Macaw people were able to curate a complex civilization with several stringent regulations that had an impact on every individual due to the wealth of natural resources. Every person belonged to a family which set forth particular guidelines for how each member had to conduct themselves. Each member of the family also had a position within it, not very dissimilar to that of the modern English royal family. Each family was headed by a single person, most certainly a man, and all other members were rated in relation to him. Each numbered position of rank could only hold one person, and positions would change if someone passed away, committed something bad, or elected to change his allegiance to another family. The Macaw people, unlike other Northwest Coast tribes, had the option to identify with either the mother's or the father's family, depending on which would confer the highest prestige. The Macaw people were able to acquire several characteristics that are shared by other Northwest Coast tribes thanks to the plentiful food supply. Some folks did not need to gather their own food to eat because there was so much food available. These folks had the ability to carry out certain activities and barter their goods and skills for food and other necessities. Due to this circumstance, the Macaw people were able to forge ahead of the influence of European economies and curate a very distinctive art form, the idea of personal wealth, and a system of ownership for songs, dances, and resource areas. At Potlatch's great feast with a large attendance, food, personal wealth, and family rank all came together. These occurrences gave the ancient Macaw culture the tools it needed to standardize crucial information regarding marriages, funerals, and who owned names, songs, dances, and other ceremonial and financial privileges. Business affecting possession or usage of these items was transacted in public, and witnesses were compelled to recall a transaction and make future reports. In the lack of a writing system, the potlatch gave the ancient Macaws a way to publicly record and recount significant events to following generations. How do we have knowledge about a way of life that, according to archaeologists, dates back roughly 4,000 years? Given that the Macaw people did not have a written system for their language, how do we know these things? The majority of the knowledge we have about the ancient Macaw people comes from a variety of sources, including written records created by first-hand witnesses like the early traders and explorers, as well as spoken history, which is knowledge passed down orally from one generation to the next. When it comes to the Macaw tribe, a single archaeological site gave all four of these sources the chance to come together and paint the most complete picture of ancient northwest coastal native life ever found on Earth. A devastating mudslide buried Ozette, one of the prehistoric Macaw villages, several hundred years ago. The settlement was buried by the blue-gray clay that poured down the hillside, blocking the decay that typically occurs in warm, moist environments. 
The Macaw tribe discovered 55,000 artifacts, 40,000 structural remains, and more than 1 million animal bones while collaborating with archaeologists from Washington State University. Over 90% of the ancient biological Northwest Coast items in existence were discovered during that 11-year dig. The written knowledge that was available about the Macaw's prehistoric material culture did not provide the archaeologists with all the details they required to identify some of the site's objects. The gaps that the recorded sources could not cover could only be filled in by oral history, primarily the enhanced wisdom of the elders. For instance, archaeologists believed that a hot meal was served using a flat, rounded device with a handle. Imagine their surprise when the device was quickly recognized by elders as a game paddle for an ancient game. The Macaw Cultural and Research Center, a contemporary building on the reservation, is now where the relics from the Ozette Village site are displayed, preserved, and archived. This tribal museum runs an educational division in addition to interpreting and preserving Macaw history, culture, and its language. The different dimensions of Macaw existence should be taught to Macaws and non-Macaws in order to preserve culture and promote understanding. One misconception regarding Macaw people is that their culture has been unchanged for countless years. When the first non-natives made contact with the Macaw tribe in 1788, the ancient way of life for those people actually came to an end. Because there exist written records that tell us about life at the time, this era of time is known as the historic period. Why did the start of non-Indian interactions signal the demise of the traditional way of life? There are numerous causes. Guns and alcohol were imported by non-natives and given to the Macaw people. They also desired things from the Macaw land, frequently in quantities that were unsustainable for the ecology. For instance, the natural balance of the Macaw coast was disturbed by European trade demands for sea otter and northern fur seal pelts, and both of these species were virtually hunted to extinction. More later, commercial whaling vessels from Europe and America took much more whales than the ecology could sustain, endangering the gray and humpback whale populations. The Macaw people voluntarily ceased hunting whales in local seas in the 1920s because there were so few whales left there. The traditional Macaw way of life saw some changes, but not all of them had to do with natural resources. Additionally impacted were politics, art, religion, and family life. Smallpox and measles, which the Macaw population was unaware of, created epidemics that decimated the tribe. Missionaries attempted to eradicate traditional Macaw rituals like potlatches and replace them with Christian traditions. Macaw households were compelled to relocate to single-family homes from their customary longhouses, where many connected families lived and collaborated. This alteration interfered with how families connected and brought up their children. Some people were able to amass the riches necessary to hold potlatches without being the head of a family thanks to the development of new trade commodities and networks. The old social and familial status structure suffered from a number of issues as a result of this transformation. The 1850s saw the start of the most significant changes in Macaw life throughout the historical period. The Macaw people were nearly wiped out by a smallpox epidemic in 1852, which also led to the abandonment of Bahada, one of the five prehistoric villages. The issue wasn't just this loss. The overwhelming number of fatalities further threw most families' power structures off balance. Additionally, knowledge of the essential elements for some ceremonies and rituals was abruptly lost. People also passed away without passing on ceremonial privileges or rights via a potlatch. The intricate social and ritual life that had persisted for ages started to disintegrate. After three years, the Macaw's way of life would change drastically. Select Macaws from villages and families signed the Treaty of Nia Bay with the U.S. government on the 31st of January, 1855. 
42 Macaw elders and Isaac Stevens, the governor and superintendent of Indian Affairs of Washington Territory, signed the treaty at Nia Bay, close to Cape Flattery at the tip of the Olympic Peninsula. This treaty followed the signing of treaties with Native Americans on Puget Sound in December of 1854 and January of 1855 at Medicine Creek in modern-day Thurston County, Point Elliott, now Muckleteo, and Point No Point near Hansville on the Kitsap Peninsula. By signing this treaty, four of the five traditional Macaw villages chiefs agreed to cede most of their ancestral grounds in exchange for a promise of $30,000 in annuity payments and a guarantee of the right to hunt, fish, seal, and whaling rights, the only such tribe to ever have this right included in a treaty signed with the U.S. government. In return for the Macaw signing the treaty, the U.S. government committed to offering things like health care and education. The Macaw Reservation was established by the Treaty of Nia Bay, which also ensured that the American government would be present in Macaw daily life. The ceded Macaw lands were described in the Treaty of Nia Bay as extending from Cape Flattery along the Strait of Juan de Fuca to the Hoko River about 15 to 20 miles east, and from Cape Flattery along the Pacific Ocean to Ozette and Cape Alava about 15 miles south. Initially, the reservation outlined in the treaty only covered the area around Cape Flattery and excluded the indigenous communities with the exception of Nia. Later, it was increased to over 27,000 acres. The Treaty of Nia Bay prevented armed warfare between the United States and the Macaw in contrast to other accords that Stevens signed. However, various legal disputes concerning the right of capturing fish and of whaling or sealing at ordinary and accustomed grounds and stations, as stated in Article 4 of the treaty, have been ongoing since the late 1800s and are still going on more than 150 years after the treaty was signed. The people who reside near the rocks and the seagulls were also given the name Macaw by the Treaty of Nia Bay. When the treaty was negotiated, the Macaw language was not used, thus the government gave the tribe's name in Salish. An inaccurate pronunciation of a Salish phrase that means generous with food led to the current name. The tribe has thus been referred to by this name moving forward rather than one from their native tongue. A series of federal officials were sent to the reservation to ensure that the government's directives were being followed. Some Indian agents stayed at the Macaw post for a longer period of time than others and this man was in full control of the reservation. Additionally, certain agents were crueler than others. Each agent's annual reports and government correspondence offer insightful details about this portion of history. The American government's decision to eradicate the Macaw language and culture serves as a suitable illustration. The school that was built on the reserve in 1862 served as a means of enhancing American culture while lessening the effect of Macaw households on their own children. Ironically, the first educator on the reservation, James Swan, produced the first ethnography of the Macaw people, which would be crucial to later attempts to revive the culture in the 1970s. Making potlatches illegal was just another method to insult Macaw culture. By the 1870s, potlatches were no longer permitted, but the Macaw people still valued this cultural practice and continued to hold them in remote locations like Tatouche Island, an island off the point of Cape Flattery. Other macaws pretended to imitate American cultural norms and told agents they were hosting birthday parties or other appropriate American celebrations. Agents were generally upset that the potlatch was so challenging to abolish in these instances, yet they were agreeable and even happy to think that macaws were adapting so effectively. Agent McGlynn continued his unsuccessful efforts to banish the potlatch in the 1890s. The Macaw tribe was still under the sovereignty of the American government far into the 20th century, and the government promoted more interactions between the Macaw and other Americans. The Macaw tribe still celebrates Macaw Days each year to remember the year in which the United States awarded citizenship and the right to vote to all American Indians. 
1931, State Road 112 extended access for the Macaw people to the rest of the Evergreen State by linking the reservation to the Olympic Peninsula. The Macaw people nevertheless wished to have a stronger voice in their affairs despite these obstacles. The chance to have local Macaw sovereignty over the reservation arose in 1934, which is when the tribe's modern culture first began to emerge. A measure that became known as the Indian Reorganization Act was passed by Congress in 1934. The ability to create a tribal constitution and establish an elected government on their reservations was provided by this law. In 1936, the Macaw tribe ratified the Macaw Constitution and accepted the IRA, giving the tribe control over the reservation for the first time since 1855. The tribal council will be composed of five elected members who will each serve a three-year term, according to the Constitution. A new tribal chairperson is chosen by the five council members each year, and no more than two seats may be available for election in any one year. The Macaw Tribal Council is the organization in charge of making laws that are applicable to the Macaw Reservation. The council also has administrative control over the departments that manage natural resources like forestry and fisheries, as well as the police and court systems that offer essential services to the residents of the reservation. The Macaw Tribe has 1,214 enrolled members, but only 1,079 of them currently reside on the reservation, according to figures from the July 1999 Tribal Census. Although a growing population and a housing shortage have prompted some locals to live in more isolated areas in Macaw Territory, the majority of people on the reservation live in Nia Bay, the central community on the reservation. Due to tourism and other seasonal jobs, the reservation's average unemployment rate, which is at 51%, marginally declines in the summer. Nearly 49% of the households on reservations earn less than the federal poverty line, and 59% of the homes are rated as inadequate. The people who dwell near the rocks and the seagulls nevertheless call the Macaw Reservation home despite this depressing depiction. After completing their higher education, many Macaws return to the reservation to work for the Macaw Tribe, the neighborhood clinic, and the public school. Even though the Macaw Tribe has a rich modern history that is significant, the tribe's revived whale hunt has gotten the world's attention the most. The Macaws opted to reclaim their right to hunt under the treaty when the gray whale's population increased and it was removed from the list of endangered species. The Macaw hunted a gray whale on the 17th of May, 1999, with the help of the American government and the International Whaling Commission. Many people think that other American Indian tribes will start hunting whales as a result of the Macaw whale hunt. The United States will not accept any other tribe's request for support since the Macaw tribe is the only tribe in the nation with a treaty right to hunt whales. Others worry that the Macaw hunt may lead to a resurgence of commercial whaling of the Pacific Gray population and that the tribe intends to export whale goods. In actuality, the Macaws and the government signed a document stating that the hunting would only be done for ceremonial and subsistence purposes. The restoration of the whale hunt is arguably the best illustration of the tribe's current ability to manage its own affairs. The hunt is also a shining illustration of how bringing back traditional practices has benefited from years of toil and sacrifice. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Doing so really helps the show to grow and to expand to a new audience, so any help that you can give in that regard will be greatly appreciated. Sources for this episode include the Macaw Cultural and Resource Center, Whaling Equipment of the Macaw Indians by T.T. Waterman, the University of Washington Libraries, HistoryLink.org, Whaling in the Pre-Contact Economy of the Central Northwest Coast by David Hulsbeck, Shell Midden as Cultural Deposits, a case study for Mosette by Gary Wesson.
Thank you for listening to episode 87, The People Who Live Amongst the Rocks and the Seagulls. Episode 88 will be released next week. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State podcast, and until next time, I'm your host, John C. There's peace on Uskokomish, on the Queets and on the Hoe. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing still a Guamish and the swirling skookum chuck and Moclips and Copalis where the razor clams abound a little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound a little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound